This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, Venezuelans welcome a delegation of Black peace activists from the United States. We'll get an assessment on what's really going on in the strife-torn African nation of Sudan. And why are black women in the U.S. so much more likely to die while giving childbirth? But first, slavery in the U.S. wasn't just a system of exploitation. It was a regime of terror. Kelly Jackson teaches African-American studies at Wellesley College. Jackson's new book is called Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence. We asked Jackson if the book's title might raise red flags among the powers that be. (laughs) I hope not. I hope not. (laughs) I I think the cover of the book alone is pretty arresting, but I I chose that on on purpose. I've been working on this book for a really long time, and maybe a couple years before the book was finished, I was thinking about possible covers and titles, and I just thought of a gun, just like a simple pistol on a white background. And I wanted to look up guns that were common to the time period that would have been used by Black abolitionists or would have been used by lots of people during that moment. And that pistol is actually one of the most common guns used in the 1850s. And by the time of the Civil War, they had sold, I think, over 250,000 copies of that gun. So I knew I wanted it. And when I brought it to my publisher, I thought for sure they would say, no way, this is too, this is too insidious. But they didn't. They, they were okay with it. They were a little, you know, I think timid about it. But I'm happy that they, they chose to honor my choice. Yes, people who think that abolitionists didn't have to defend themselves don't understand the times and don't understand the system of slavery. Yeah, that's for sure. I think that, you know, I talk about this a lot in the book, that we have this sort of romantic idea of the Underground Railroad being this, you know, sort of framework where people are just able to escape and there's never any danger other than capture and that that there's no violence, that there's no confrontation, that everyone gets where they're supposed to go safely. In a lot of instances, that's just not true. There's tons of violence. There's tons of confrontation that slave catchers are putting their own lives at risk, that being a slave catcher is what I call sort of the deadliest catch of the 19th century. Slaves knew that they had nothing to lose when they ran away. And so if someone came after them, they would risk everything, even their lives, to prevent being sent back. So they armed themselves, sometimes with guns, sometimes with knives, bowie knives, sometimes with farm equipment or sticks, whatever they had to protect themselves and to prevent themselves from being sent back into slavery. Yes, it was incumbent on some of the abolitionists of the time to pretend that this was not about defending folks' lives and futures by force, because that wasn't a good public relations kind of image. But that was not the case at all. No, I don't I don't think so at all. I think that, you know, when the abolitionist movement really starts to formalize in the 1830s, 
the stance of sort of nonviolence or what people would call moral suasion is really sort of the dominant sentiment. So people believe that they can morally persuade people that slavery is wrong, that slavery is a sin. This is also sort of taking place during the Second Great Awakening. So people believe that Christ is coming back and that, you know, you should get your house in order. But as they go on into the movement, decades into the movement, they have not made any progress. That moral suasion, that nonviolence has not stopped the spread of slavery. It has not stopped legislation that's very pro-slavery. And so Black abolitionists realize if they want to see a change, if they want something, if they want the movement to get accelerated, they're going to have to take a much more aggressive stance. And so there are some that are quick to get on that bandwagon and others that are a little bit more slow, like Frederick Douglass, for example. But eventually the majority of Black abolitionists do take up this stance of using force and using violence as a form of resistance and as a form of pushback. And really they start to see it not just as a viable alternative, but eventually they see it as the only alternative in abolishing the institution of slavery. Yes, Black abolitionists had lots of points of contention with white abolitionists. For example, early on, many white northern abolitionists advocated that the North secede from the South so that the North could rid itself of the stain of slavery. But of course, that would also mean abdicating all responsibility to the enslaved. Sure, and I think that... There's a tendency in the public to sort of think of the North as, as having this moral authority. But that's just not true. The, every single colony in the United States, every single colony had slavery. So there's slaves in Connecticut and in New York and in Massachusetts and in Rhode Island. Slavery is everywhere. So first I want to establish that. I think that's important not to think of slavery just as a Southern phenomenon. But also we need to realize that a lot of the textile industries that are producing uh, this cotton that's being sold all over the world are in northern states. So in places like Lowell, Massachusetts, you know, 90% of the factories are dedicated to cotton production and to producing this cotton and to manufacturing this cotton. So the North is very complicit. I mean, hand in hand in terms of how slavery plays out. So the idea that the North could sort of separate itself from the South is a little bit ridiculous because they certainly couldn't do it economically and, and politically it wasn't feasible either. And in terms of black abolitionists exerting their leadership and independence within the abolition movement, it was Frederick Douglass who said that the man who was struck is the man to cry out. Mm, yeah, that's a really good point. I think you know, when I talk about the abolitionists and when I talk about the enslaved, they bear the brunt of violence. You know, there are certainly white abolitionists who put their lives at risk. But when it comes to anti-abolitionist mobs and attacks that happen all throughout the North, it's black businesses, black homes, black churches, black orphanages. Those are the first institutions that are destroyed by anti-abolitionist mobs. So... Whether if you're in the South and you're an enslaved person, you're definitely experiencing violence. Violence is all you know. But when you're in the North as well, violence is still present. It's, it's a part of every everyday fabric of African-American life. 
Yes, in fact, white mobs drove the entire black population of Cincinnati out of town, about 5,000 people in expressing their pro-slavery or anti-black feelings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is absolutely true. I mean, there are a lot of towns that I think we would think of as being northern strongholds, like in, you know, Maine or in uh, New Hampshire, where they completely destroyed an integrated school because they refused to see black children and white children going to school together. They rather destroyed the school. This is in the 1830s. So, you know, this history really dates pretty far back. You see abolitionists as a model that is useful today. Well, we in fact see the term coming back into broad usage in radical and black circles, activist circles. Mm-hmm. I think there's a there's a new movement now to sort of reclaim the word abolitionist. A lot of it I've heard is associated with mass incarceration and sort of prison abolitionists, people who would like to do away with the prison system, um, because nothing about prison sort of rehabilitates you or prepares you to be a better citizen in society. Uh, the prison system right now is, it's remarkable how much it looks like the institution of slavery. And so, so I think that people are looking at the tactics and the strategies and the language and the rhetoric of the abolitionists and saying, how can we employ this in our own moment? How can we make use of their success and hopefully bring about success in our own struggles? You focus on the violence that is inherent in slavery and that folks should not forget. And it then follows that violence is inherent in all of the successive efforts in the United States to reimpose some kind of slavery on black people, that the slavery violence did not end. Mm, that's, that's a really good point. I think that, you know, one thing I, I tell my students is that slavery starts in violence, it is sustained by violence, and it ends through violence. And I think that, you know, we have to understand just how violent the institution is, that you can't have something like slavery without having violence, without having rape or sexual assault or mutilation. All of these things are a part of that. I also think that we have this paradox where we see violence as something as long, as problematic, as something to be combated, and yet, without violence, you don't have the American Revolution, you don't have the Haitian Revolution, you don't have the Civil War, you don't have World War One or Two. So a lot of these transformative moments in which we benchmark or timeline history as something progressive has involved violence. Yes, we have folks who just uh, condemn violence in principle, whose very comfortable lives are actually secured and made possible by daily use of force against other people. Exactly, exactly. And on that note, in terms of continuing varying states of oppression, should we see militarized policing as the child of slavery? Absolutely. You know, when I think about the slave patrols that were used in the 18th and 19th century to really uphold slavery and to keep slaves from running away, you know, these weren't necessarily slave holders. These were poor white men who did not own land, who did not own slaves, and yet were employed by slave holders to do their bidding, to protect their property. And in the same way, I think you can fast forward to today and you can see the way that 
police officers and the way that even in some in certain aspects of the military have been used to protect the wealth, to protect the elite, to protect these institutions that do a great harm. And so there are elements of that that I think echo throughout time. And I believe that police are a wonderful institution when they are doing their job to protect and serve. But I think when they are doing their jobs to protect and serve white supremacy, they're doing everyone a great disservice. And so we need to be able to sort of decipher how these roles get played out, how they get used in, and more importantly, who the brunt of the violence gets used against. Yes, and that's the kind of conversation that led Malcolm to end many of his speeches and to put the exclamation point on his points by any means necessary. Yeah, it is. And I, you know, I 100% agree, but I think that we need to sort of expand the definition of means. So means is not necessarily marches, nor is means necessarily guns, right? There's a whole range of means that can be employed to bring about someone's uh, liberation or to bring about justice. And so I see means as very necessary, but I also give it a broad range of definitions to include all tactics and strategies that will be most effective in bringing people to freedom. So this worked, I think, really well for the abolitionists in the 19th century. And the 21st century, you know, it's a deadly proposition. So uh, now it's a deadly proposition back then as well. But I think, you know, 200 years later, we can look back on it and recognize that slavery was problematic. We're in a moment where it's very difficult for us to define what racism even is. For a lot of white Americans, they have a hard time defining what racism is outside of the N-word. So I think it's way more complicated or a little bit less black and white to be able to take up the strategies that the abolitionists did. So are you saying that we're suffering from a lack of imagination in the 21st century in terms of novel ways to tackle these age-old but morphing kinds of problems? Mm, That's a good point. You know, I would like to say that the abolitionists of the 19th century would have loved to have technology and social media and, you know, and all of these things that we sort of employ today, they did not have those networks. You know, you had to rely on someone's word. You had to rely on somebody's ability to be there and be there when they said they were going to be there. Trust was a really, really big deal in the abolitionist movement because you had to rely so much on people's ability, you know, to come through and to back up their promises. So, you know, I think that there's a lot that we can learn about the 19th century and how much they relied on trust and basic humanity in order to accomplish their goals. I think that's much more difficult to do now. And I think that to be a positive, I think we also do have a lot more, you know, tools that are at our disposal to be able to be more effective in terms of how we get the message out there. In the 18th, you know, in 19th century, the newspapers were sort of the major mode of communication. But now we have so many different modes of communication. And I think we can sort of expand our imaginations about what means means and what means looks like in the 21st century. Well, yes, we have plenty of tools, but most of those tools are owned by a few billionaires in Silicon Valley. (laughs) I know. That's, and that's the problem, too. You know, how do you use the master's tools to dismantle his house? I think that's also some, a question that remains. 
I think that if there's anything that I want readers to take away from my book is to know that black abolitionists were the first abolitionists, that they were the founders and leaders and movers of their movement, that white abolitionists help, but they are and should be peripheral to the movement, that black people should be at the center of it. And so I've worked really hard in this book to put black people, to put black leadership, men and women, at the center of their own struggles and really give them voice and give them value and really crank up the volume on that voice, I think it's so important. And so I want readers of any race to be empowered by what black men and women were capable of doing in a moment that seemed impossible. That was author Kelly Jackson. A delegation from the Black Alliance for Peace recently returned from Venezuela, where they were honored for helping protect the Venezuelan embassy in Washington from being handed over to supporters of Juan Guaido, right-wing politician that was handpicked as president by the Trump administration. Netfa Freeman was part of the Black Alliance for Peace delegation. We met with a lot of grassroots organizations and actually projects, we should say people's projects, what they call people's communes. And what they wanted, one was to, for us to be able to see what they're doing on the ground and contrary to U.S. propaganda against the country, but also to express their gratitude for what we did in terms of the embassy. Every place we went, they expressed gratitude for people protecting the embassy, which they saw as a defense of the country. And then people should understand who don't know, you know, if you're not familiar, that embassies in various countries constitute the sovereign territory of that country. So when the United States was saying they were going to put in their selection of a Venezuelan president in the body of this person, Juan Guaido, who wasn't elected in Venezuela, didn't even run in the elections, when they were going to put him in, they were actually in the embassy and his entourage or cohorts, they were actually in violation of the sovereignty of Venezuela. And so what we were doing, there was people who actually occupied the embassy and kept people out. And those of us who were on the outside demonstrating and protecting against the right wing extremists and also trying to get food and supplies to the people who are inside the embassy while the police were trying to keep us all apart. Yes, one would think that most Venezuelans would be indignant at the violation of their sovereignty. Yeah, at least when you go to Venezuela, when we were there, everywhere we went, and I think that we met and were able to see a very cross-section of the country, not really the elite class, but black and brown working class people were all indignant at that violation. The only ones that you see that were not are the right-wing minority oligarchy class that is actually primarily here in the United States. There's some in, in Venezuela, too, but we didn't really come into that, and they're not a majority at all by any stretch of the imagination. And then some people who might even be opposed to or have issues with the Maduro government also would close ranks with those who are in support of the Maduro government because they don't support U.S. aggression and U.S. imperialism taking over their country. Now, you met with people who were involved in cooperative enterprises from way back here in the United States. I wonder how those enterprises can keep going when Venezuela has been so effectively sanctioned and cut off from much of its former trading partners by the United States. 
Well, they are having difficulty going on, but I think the people in those communes see no other choice but to increase their cooperation and their ingenuity in terms of keeping them going. And they, unlike the United States, where you know you have things going here, but with no support whatsoever from the state, unlike here, the government supports them. So actually, there are programs and, and stipulations in their constitution that make way for the economic and other material support of the people's communes and the people's projects like Barrio Adentro, which is to establish the healthcare clinics and healthcare facilities around the country. And we went to one place where this community built their own apartment complex. This is a cement, fully equipped apartment complex. I remember how many stories, there were like 10 stories, maybe higher. And the people actually built it themselves. Of course, it was completed when we got there and they showed us everything. They had a bakery and a child care center and a health clinic inside. And it's a commune. So they actually cooperate in how they do things in the country. But then what was a real treat was that after we saw all this and they took us around and showed us even the, an urban garden that they had, they were able to see for the first time as well as us seeing for the first time a documentary that tracked their construction of their habitat. And so we were able to see them on film and they were able to see themselves for the first time laying the cement and, you know, building things and actually also even preceding that when they actually were struggling to acquire the land through legal process and legal, legal means. And so that was very interesting to see. And on the film, they also showed them figuring out how they were going to cooperate with each other, things like how gossip is corrosive to their unity and why, how they need to keep that in check, different things like that. It was very interesting to see such a grassroots project. You sound like you're talking about people with a relatively high level of morale. Oh, yes. I mean, they expressed over and over again. It's almost everywhere we went, but particularly in the communes, and we're talking about black and brown working class people. Black people and then people who are distinctly like phenotypically indigenous American or African. And the women are leading it, right? And then when they were talked to us with such passion and clarity about what their project is about and the gratitude they expressed for us, and then them saying, we're not defending it. I'm kind of paraphrasing, trying to wanting to quote the sister because it was very moving. She's like, we're not defending a, a box. We're not defending an apartment. We're defending our, now I can't remember the words she used, but it pretty much meant, it was pretty much was the same as saying self-determination, whatever she, the words that she used and the passion in which she spoke and the clarity. And, and it was very, for them, it's like, it's their dignity that they're defending as well as their survival is how they see it. Sounds like you were inspired. Oh, yeah. Not just me, all of our people. And I think when we look at what we're seeing here within the United States, austerity, economic oppression, and the political repression that we face in our communities through mass incarceration and the police uh, coming down on us and those kind of things, criminalization of things and children and all that, when we see there, and then we also see as a byproduct of that repression and economic anxieties, our own people turning on each other, you know, the intercommunal violence that we face, there it's like the opposite, and it's supported by the state, the projects that they have. So what we see, there's no way to not be inspired because what we see is an example of what's possible in the United States and actually what's needed in what we face here. So one of the things we also met, and if you don't mind, I, I want to say we also were able to meet with the president, President uh, Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela, just the Embassy Protection Collective, just meeting with him. And one of the things he said, which I found interesting and I thought about, was he talked about the, the revival of the Monroe Doctrine and anti-communism. 
I mean, I wasn't just talking about the context of Venezuela, but just in general, he's using it and saying it was very clear that it's more than just the Trump administration, but just what the United States is doing. And so what I saw that as really he's talking about white supremacy and the class struggle, the acute nature of where that's going right now, and that what Venezuela is facing is a mirror, is a, and Venezuela and other countries, is the foreign policy that mirrors the domestic agenda that we're facing here in the United States. While some of us will say, and there was a slight difference between those of us who are representing the Black Alliance for Peace and the other people in the delegation, no all respect, all due respect to them, but in terms of how it was approached, they were very much um, standing up against the indiscretions of their government and my government, and we should be doing We have a different relationship. You know, they're saying that they have a responsibility because they're Americans. Our position is that that's our people, African, Afro-Venezuelans, and the people who would be and working class, black and brown people who would be most adversely affected by the policies are our people. That's who we identify with. We don't identify with the ruling class, white supremacist, patriarchal system and capitalist system that's here and the class that benefits from it. Our interests are aligned with the masses of people around the world that we share in terms of heritage and culture and class and race and those kind of things. And so that was one of the reasons that we went was to make those kind of connections, which we also had a chance to do. And that's why we have to stand up against U.S. policy toward Venezuela and other places, because we're actually standing up for ourselves when we do it. And you also attended the Sao Paulo Forum, which most people in the United States have never heard of. So explain what the Sao Paulo Forum is. So the Sao Paulo Forum, it originated in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, Brazil. It's a conference of various Latin American movements and, and radical uh, leftist organizations that's coming together to assert their interests and, you know, kind of realize and share information and build connections with each other. And so it's been taking place periodically. And this year it was taking place in Venezuela. It's adopted the name Sao Paulo form because where it was originated in Brazil and has kept that name and but also but goes to the various countries. Obviously because it's an international forum it's heavily, mostly Latin America, and it's designed around creating solidarity with Latin American uh, movements and organizations, but obviously also other people from other places of the world, from other hemispheres come. And so we were participating in that just before the Sao Paulo Forum happened, the non-aligned meeting happened just before we were there in Venezuela. So it was very fitting that the governments, the non-aligned movement with the governments that are trying to stand up to U.S. and European hegemony met. And then right after the Sao Paulo Forum, you have with the grassroots organizations and movements meeting and trying to assert and understand our own agenda. So it was a very interesting time to be there. And when we went there, again, uh, not just the Venezuelan people, but the Sao Paulo Forum has people from all around. When the delegation would walk in, they announced that we were there and people gave the delegation of embassy protection collective standing ovations. So unlike in the United States where we didn't get any real news coverage at all, or particularly if there was any news coverage, any clarity of what that was about, it's the opposite around the world. People around the world understand certain things, they get better information, and they have a dignity and impression about things that is completely different than, than what's crafted in the United States. However, getting to and from Venezuela these days is difficult. 
Oh, yeah. And this was the Trump administration's addition to the Obama sanctions, which discouraged direct flights to Venezuela. So right now, there's no way for people to travel directly from the United States to Venezuela. So when we went there, we had to go first to El Salvador, San Salvador, then to Panama, Panama City, and then to Venezuela. And what, because of the closing of the embassies and the consulates, you also can't get a visa to go to Venezuela right now and vice versa. So people in Venezuela can't just get a visa where you would normally get a visa. You can't do that. So you have to go to another country. And that means you have to exit the airport and then get to the embassy there and then get a visa and then get back in the airport and then go along your way. Now, for us, they tried to make it a little easier for us, but it still wasn't very easy by issuing what they called a courtesy visa to us to help us try to not have to get out of the embassy and everything. And then we got our visa once we were there. They issued us a visa once there. But that's not what everyone can do, you know, so it makes it very difficult. And then people have to understand that this affects other conditions in a country when business people or people with certain trades or anything or government people can't travel directly, then it impedes the type of transactions that need to happen for governments of the world and for people of the world to cooperate. And now you're back, and I'm sure you're going to report to the rest of the Black Alliance for Peace about your mission. What's the key point that you would want to hammer home? Well, one that we think that it is incumbent on black working class and black working class people to take a stand against the sanctions, the U.S. government sanctions, and not just, I don't want to say just sanctions, just aggressions in general against Venezuela. And we should also be trying to educate ourselves about the blatant contradictions and hypocrisy that go on while people in Haiti and Honduras are uh, suffering the effects of U.S. policy are up in arms. The, the media and the policymakers, particularly the people running for office, and also the ones who are being listed up now as the most progressive, are not talking about the gangster, draconian measures that are being leveled against Venezuela, helping us understand the contradiction. So we have to teach ourselves, we have to build our movement and stand up against it, and then we have to also see it as tantamount to the domestic repression that we face here, and that know that the government that a lot of people call their own is the biggest threat to peace, security, and the planet right now in any other place. And so we should be able to see through any lies that they tell us and know that our struggle goes beyond Republican or Democratic administration. And it has to be about us building a grassroots movement on the ground that knows how to build our survival and our cooperation and then make international connections with those doing the same. That was Netfa Freeman of the Black Alliance for Peace. The African nation of Sudan may soon be run by a transitional government made up of both civilians and military. Longtime strongman Omar al-Bashir was ousted from power in a military coup in April, and hundreds of people demanding democracy were killed by soldiers. We spoke with Ahmed Kaduda, a Ph.D. candidate and researcher at George Washington University and a native of Sudan. Well, I think that what's happening in Sudan right now is certainly not in isolation to what's happening in the region. The Forces for Freedom and Change, which are a coalition of various opposition groups, civil society organizations, labor unions, as well as some of the armed groups in the country, have tried their best to create a platform 
wide enough to accommodate all of their constituent parts. Of course, a lot of different actors are interested in influencing how the transition goes in Sudan. But for the most part, I think it's quite commendable how much they've been able to maintain their independence. And I think this has a lot to do with the pressure of the street on the opposition. There's a keen sense of awareness now as a result of the current mobilization that people are not willing to go the pathway of Egypt, where a popular uprising basically led to the old regime coming back in a much more aggressive way. I think the opposition itself has gotten a lot of flack for engaging with outside powers, in particular the United Arab Emirates and the Saudis, which are, of course, some of the most powerful countries in the region and are interested in the, if you will, autocratic backsliding in Sudan. These countries are not interested in any sort of democratization process happening. I think, surprisingly, what we're seeing is that the the United States, of course, which is most interested in stability on its own terms, has actually pushed these countries to quiet down their support to the military. Of course, opposition figures engage as they should with embassies because these foreign interests have played a significant part in actually propping up the previous autocratic regime of Omar al-Bashir. Bashir, certainly for the vast majority of his time in power, had lost internal legitimacy. He was actually being propped up by the United States because he cooperated with them on intelligence sharing by the European Union, for example, which gave his notorious Janjaweed militia something upwards of 150 million euros to fund them as border guards to prevent the migration of people from the Horn of Africa. So the outside powers have actually done their best to keep Omar al-Bashir in power. But because of the resilience of the Sudanese people, they've been able to overcome the brutality of the regime and through a non-violent resistance movement have succeeded in toppling him. At this stage, I think if democracy is to take root in Sudan, it would be in spite of the interests of almost any interested power or regional country. You look at the neighborhood in which Sudan exists, you don't have a single democracy around Sudan at this stage. The regional interests are certainly to ensure that there's a strong military government, but I think the democratic opposition which in and of itself has a lot of problems, has been able to put those interests at bay. I think the most positive regional engagement has been that of Ethiopia and its Prime Minister, Abi Ahmed, who's really tried to take the lead, in particular through the African Union, to make sure that the military junta cedes power to the opposition, the civilian opposition, as quickly as possible. This transitional government that's been agreed upon and which is supposed to rule for three years before elections looks on its face quite fragile. Eleven members, five from the military and five from the civilian sector, the protest movement, and one civilian agreed on by both sides. Yeah, I think it's certainly a compromise by the civilians as well as by the military. There's a 
distinction that needs to be made in particular because there's the Sovereignty Council, which is this 11-member council you spoke of, but at the same time, there's supposed to be an entirely civilian-led technocratic prime minister and a cabinet. That's supposed to act as the administration, if you will. The executive power, if you will, will be, according to this agreement, in the hands of the civilians. But sovereign decisions, which are, of course, the most contentious decisions, are to be taken by this joint council. I think in many ways, while a lot of folks on the street and some of the activists are quite upset about this agreement, I think the current arrangement actually will help ensure that the transition goes as smoothly as possible. This is particularly because historically the military has always interfered in politics when civilian governments, democratically elected, fail to bring about the reforms and the, and the economic reforms the country needs. So at this stage, this current arrangement gives the responsibility equally to the military and the civilians. So if the situation gets worse, which I think it will economically, and the situation is going to affect the civilian population negatively, unless there are major reforms, and these reforms will take time and they'll certainly be painful, the military cannot step in and make a coup because they will be equally responsible for the success or the failure of the transition. So this is kind of like a way to ensure that the military is equally responsible. And in the case of failure or popular discontent, the military cannot wash its hands and say, we are going to reorient as they always do when it comes to cooling out civilian governments. So in many ways, this is why I think this is the right approach by the civilians to give the military ownership of the transition as much as the civilians. At the same time, I think the civilians recognize that the military have all the power when it comes to the, the military firepower. But what's been very impressive and unique about this revolution is that despite the fact that there are various armed groups around the country fighting on behalf of marginalized ethnic minorities, they've all maintained their insistence on ensuring that this uprising is completely nonviolent. And despite the fact that the regime of Omar al-Bashir needed very violent backlash to the protests, the population withstood the killing of something over 200, possibly 300 civilians, unarmed civilians, with more nonviolent resistance. Uh, it's quite impressive, to be honest. One would think that the military would be speaking of their role in preserving the territorial integrity of Sudan, which is and has been beset by numerous secessionist movements. Yes, of course. Uh, I think the most important component of the timeline is the first six months, which is supposed to focus on the resolution of these armed conflicts and achieving a comprehensive peace that is supposed to be signed by the various armed groups. Now, you know, there are dozens of armed groups throughout the country, but the most important two are led by Abdel Wahid al Nur, which is in central Darfur, and another led by Abdel Aziz al Shilu, 
which is mostly in the Nuba Mountains. Uh, these two armed groups seem to maintain significant territory and a substantial amount of uh, combatants. And the government, this transitional government, has a timeline of six months to achieve a lasting peace agreement. I think Sudan's historical legacy, colonial heritage, and the various governments that have ruled the country have failed to address one of the most important questions in Sudan, which is this question of identity, whereby an imposed Arab Islamic identity on peoples that are diverse in their languages, in their cultures, and in their religions are being basically marginalized by the state. If the government, this transitional government, is able to address this question of identity, what it means to be Sudanese, I think this will go a long way to actually preventing these marginalized groups from picking up, and it'll give them a shared sense of ownership, what it is to be Sudanese. 41 Sudanese intelligence agencies have been accused of murder for their actions during the crackdown on demonstrators. Civilians, those who came out to the streets, simply banding their rights for more freedoms and calling for a transitional government, were shot in cold blood. And, and of course, it's very important to mention that President Bashir's government engaged in a very violent set of civil wars in southern Sudan and the brutal genocide in Darfur, which was committed by Arab militias against civilians because the military proper was not able to actually engage with these armed groups. So the government armed these various militias. So the legacy of Bashir's rule unfortunately haunts Sudan till today with the, with the genocide playing a very central role in the transition. And there are other legacies. We know that Israel for decades has been engaged in its meddling in Sudan. And you mentioned that, surprisingly, the United States has been acting as a counterweight to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates in terms of helping this transitional government get root. Why do you think the United States isn't doing its usual, which is to back the most reactionary elements everywhere? Yeah, I think the United States' current engagement in Sudan is informed by previous misadventures in Yemen. It's important to know that Sudan is a very important uh, and strategic country in the region. It's a gateway to migrants who are going to Europe, as well as its vast ethnic geography, which spills over to almost every single country it names. And the United States, I think, recognizes that if there is a state failure or collapse in Sudan, the ramifications are going to be very devastating, not just for Sudan, but the entire region, possibly all the way throughout the Sahel and West Africa, including East Africa and Somalia, and of course, upwards north to Egypt. I think the United States at this stage recognizes that the current popular uprising in Sudan is something that cannot be and it's trying to position itself in a way to ensure that 
the civilian administration that takes root is certainly a friendly administration. That was Ahmed Kaduda speaking from George Washington University. Black women in the United States die in childbirth at roughly three times the rate of white women. Donna Ayeen Davis is director of the Center for the Study of Women and Society at the City University of New York. Davis is author of the book Reproductive Injustice, Racism, Pregnancy, and Premature Birth. She says black women's reproduction sits at the intersection of medical control and racism. I mean that we understand that there are historical precedents for the ways in which black women have been viewed, their bodies have been viewed and treated in heinous ways, and medical racism in and of itself is a term that has been an issue that has been explored by a number of scholars, but it describes generally the process of a bias in the delivery of care. Where those biases come from, many people have not actually figured that out, but it does describe this bias. And we know that some research has shown that medical professionals may be less likely to provide pain medication to groups of people that they, like, like black people that they think have a higher pain threshold. And in the case of people who are birthing or pregnant people, I try to make the argument that the way that the history of the medical profession intersects with racism provides a particular kind of choreography, if you will, on the bodies of black people, black women in particular, that results in them them meaning the medical profession, being almost unwilling or possibly unable to treat black women as human people who require attention and care, to listen to them and not presume that they don't know what's going on with their bodies. So it's both the historical factors of racism and the medical profession in and of itself particularly as it relates to obstetrics and gynecology, has been, or rather has treated, black women horrifically. Many of the reproductive health procedures that are currently in use today were experienced trial and error on black women who were enslaved. And in more contemporary times, it was not about enslavement. It was just about the sort of egregious way in which black women's bodies are viewed as sort of a, a good space to, to investigate and, and, and experiment. Yes, you speak of obstetric racism, and I'm sure that that has not earned you smiles and good <laughs> feelings in lots of the arenas that you work in. But you say that in terms of reproductive justice, there are lots of folks who are coming to the front of the fight in the medical mm -hmm. professions. Yeah, well, not necessarily in the medical professions, but in the caregiving professions. First, let me say that my analysis is about a system, and it is about the medical system and the structure of a system that trains people to view bodies as 
deficits and to view certain processes as deficits. So a doctor, for example, and or a nurse could be trained to view a pregnant person as a risk person. There are other doctors that do not have that view, that view pregnancy and birthing as a natural event. So depending on one's orientation, a medical professional could be in either camp. But generally, the system of medicine in the United States has a stacked, I think the deck is stacked against people, and in particular against black people. What I am finding and am proud and excited to be part of this group and and proud to be able to witness the kinds of uh, changes and interventions that are taking place is among what I call radical birth workers. And they're radical in part because they're doing something that many in the medical profession don't do, which is they are providing care for a range of birthing people, but mostly targeted to black women and black birthing people who require really a supportive system when they are pregnant and when they are laboring. And those radical birth workers include midwives who may be nurse midwives or practicing midwives. It includes doulas who are a group of people that provide no medical support, but provide emotional support to birthing people. And it includes advocates for reproductive justice who tend to view the birthing practice as one of many areas and domains that need to be controlled by birthing people, not by the medical profession, and are interested in justice, meaning a reasonable, fair set of practices that allow people to flourish. These are three groups that I think are making tremendous, tremendous headway in bringing the issue of black women's adverse birth outcomes and the, the issue of obstetric racism. And that group, including these doulas and midwives and, of course, nurses, are key uh, to what you're seeking, which is more birthing options, including home births. Exactly. I think that the medical profession has manipulated people into believing that pregnancy is always a medical event. And I think that what might work well in the United States is if people understood that they, in fact, had more birthing options. It is only if a person has a particular set of risk factors, which can be of many, that they might need a medical intervention. But generally speaking, people should be aware of the fact that they can have a home birth or that they could go to a birthing center and that they could have a midwife or and or a doula and that they may not necessarily need an obstetrician. But without the knowledge that these are safe practices, without the availability of birthing centers and the availability of people who are trained to do home births, people are not able to avail themselves of these particular kinds of caregiving practices that, by the way, tend to have incredibly good outcomes. There are a number of 
midwives in the United States, but I can think of two, three actually at the moment, who are black midwives who have worked with doing home births and working in their own centers, one of whom is Jenny Joseph, who's probably one of the most famous black midwives in the U.S. She works out of Florida. She's had over a thousand births and with a negligible number of complications. And in fact, as if I recall correctly, there may have been one complication and it wasn't a, a mortal, you know, it didn't result in a mortality. That suggests to me that there are other ways in which people can experience their birthing scenarios and have positive outcomes. You say you like to think about building whole new worlds. Whole new worlds aren't necessarily right on the horizon, but we could get (laughs) Medicare for all in the foreseeable future. And under most of those plans, people could choose their doctors and choose their facilities and not worry about the cost. But this does not necessarily change racist obstetrics. Well, precisely. And I think that we need to take a look at other locations um, internationally where, I hesitate to say this, but it's true, where racism actually does exist, but birth outcomes are still good. And one of the places where that happens is in Cuba. There is racism in Cuba, and the birth outcomes are pretty phenomenal. And there are a number of reasons for that. And I think one of them is the fact that Medical professionals, and we're not talking about radical birth workers, the people that I'm looking at in the U.S., but medical professionals understand their job as to keep people healthy. And in addition to which, medical professionals are all trained the same way. And I think one of the things that we have in the U.S., which is why we would be hard-pressed to excise racism from medical training, is that every medical school trains people differently. There isn't a sort of core set of practices that would lead to a sort of even degree of knowledge acquisition that would allow people to treat people similarly across medical institutions. That's not the case in Cuba. From what I understand, that is not the case in Germany. Everybody gets the same medical training. So I think the issue is, Given that we are so connected to medical systems, what are the ways in which we can both make those medical systems better, but also offer other options? When we Um, see stats like black women and their children dying at rates of three times white women, there's a tendency on the part of established media to call that intractable. But Mm. the intractability of the problem probably lies in the institutions, like the medical institution. I would say that that's true. I would say that it is true that if we don't acknowledge where racism might be located, then it does become intractable. For instance, Many medical professionals and hospitals are very interested in talking about this concept of implicit bias, suggesting that medical professionals have a series of biases where they're not intentionally seeking to harm people, but these are the subtle ways in which, you know, history and training leaks its way into the kind of services they provide or don't provide. Well, there's actually no real consequence for implicit bias. They name it, they train on it but the medical profession doesn't experience a consequence if, for example, 
a person dies as a result of a particular kind of procedure going bad or a wrong decision. There may be an investigation, but there's no consequence. So the concept of intractability, I think, is very much connected to where we seek to lay blame and where we seek to do intervention. So there are many medical journals, for example, that still say race is a risk factor for an adverse birth outcome. There are many of us who say race is not the risk factor, racism is the risk factor. And until the structure of the medical system is able to acknowledge that racism permeates the system, then yes, that intractability is a reality. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network.